for the reading of God's Word from the second chapter of Ephesians, starting in verse 11 through verse 18. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Well, let me begin by saying Happy New Year. We begin a new church year today with this first Sunday of Advent. Advent is about hope. Hope in the midst of what otherwise would be a hopeless situation. In a world of chaos, and if there is no God, a world without purpose and plan then we are only left with fear and despair. We ended last year with the warnings of Scripture that we were to not be cheated by philosophy, that is, or to be more precise, not be cheated by a false philosophy. Darwin cast out God and seven demons have rushed in to fill the void. And so too the Bible opens with darkness and chaos. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. The world was created full of hope in the midst of paradise. Then sin fouled the water. And hope was dashed. Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise. They were cut off from the tree of life. Shame and darkness rushed in. But even then, moments after the fall and the curse, God provided hope. Even in the midst of judgment, there was mercy. This first promise of the gospel, of a Savior was set before man, lest he perish without hope. This gospel hope is constantly present. It's right before our faces, but our own blindness keeps us from seeing it. In Acts 17, when Paul is preaching at the Areopagus in Athens, he declares to those who are surrounded with statues of all kinds of false gods, he said, And he, that is the true God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, 
and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So each Sunday in Advent has a different theme associated with it regarding the coming of Christ. The first one is hope, and we have the Advent candles here that represent each of these. So the first candle that is lit is the candle of hope. That will be followed by love, joy, and peace. If we're to grasp the full meaning, though, of hope, love, joy, and peace, this will require faith in God and his word, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Moreover, his word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and hope is what keeps the destination clearly set before us. The Bible has a great deal to say about all four of these, primarily because it has a great deal to say about Jesus Christ. But I want to take a brief look at all four because all four provide encouragement that I think will lift our spirits. C.S. Lewis observed that hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most about the next. And Chesterton observed, hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or else it's no virtue at all. As long as, <clears throat> excuse me, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. So in our text today, I really just want to hone in on one short phrase that describes the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, as having no hope and without God in the world. Those are really synonymous. In the English translation, the two words, without God, is the Greek one Greek word where we get our word atheist. Of course, the pagans had many gods, which were represented by many statues and idols. <clears throat> but Paul is saying that these are actually non-gods. They're not gods at all. Those who think they worship them are worshiping something that really doesn't exist. And so Paul argues that the Jews and the Gentiles have come together now as one family through the cross of Jesus Christ. The pagans, he says, you used to be far away. Israel, remember, had the word of God. They had the law. They had the prophets. They were close. He said, all the rest of you were far away. But now you have been brought near. Verses 16, verse 16 and 17, or excuse me, 15 and 16 tells us what the purpose of the Messiah was. That was to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby putting to death the enmity or the conflict. With all the division, with all the animosity in the world, things seem to be hopeless. But Christ has brought real hope as he has provided the only means for peace. Peace between races, peace between this person and that person, between this nation and that nation. The problem, remember, is sin. Christ deals with the problem. Everything else is window dressing. Everything else is hopeless, really. At the center of the gospel story is Jesus Christ. Everything leading up to his birth points to him and to his advent. All things were not only created by him, but for him. He comprehends or takes in all of eternity. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the hope of the world. Now, let me begin by defining what the Bible means by the word hope. First, it is not using the word in the sense of, I hope so, or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. This is the sort of hope that is simply wishful thinking. Gospel hope is certain. It is a certain hope because it is built upon God himself. Therefore, when the Bible speaks of hope, we have something strong to lay hold of. So, for example, in Hebrews 6, we read, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel or word, confirmed it by an oath that the two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope, he says, we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. We have hope because God is true. That is, when everything else is shaky, when everything else is uncertain, that's true. That is where we stand. In other words, this kind of hope is certain because God himself is certain. Now, you know not all promises are equal. I promise is a powerful pair of words. Has anyone ever promised you something, and if they broke that promise, what did you think of them? Or on the other hand, what did you think of them if they kept their word? You see, a promise is an oath. It's a pledge to do something, and it ties our words to our actions. It is a reflection of our character. It demonstrates either faithfulness or unfaithfulness. It is a means of establishing trust or faith between people. Hopes and expectations are built on promises. If he said he would do it, you can take it to the bank. He is a man of his word. This should be the legacy that we all leave. Well, hopes and expectations then are indeed built on promises. So we can't place our hope 
in someone that lies, in someone that is untrustworthy. A broken promise erodes all trust. Our God, however, is true to his word. He never fails to keep his promises. Augustine said, God is not a deceiver that he should offer to support us, and then when we lean upon him, should slip away from us. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The Bible is full of God's promises. But none are greater than his promises to send a Savior to save us from our sins, which is the problem, right? Therefore, placing our hope in these promises of Christ's advent is a sure thing. For us, advent is actually a time of remembering. In the Old Testament, they were still looking forward to the coming of Christ. We now look back and see that God indeed fulfilled that particular promise. It's about remembering that God, our Heavenly Father, kept His promise that he bound himself to us, that he gave us a future. In fact, we learn from redemptive history that he always keeps his promises. One of his essential attributes is that he is a covenant-keeping or a promise-keeping God. That's who he is. Thus we just sang, Come thou long-expected Jesus. There's one central promise That's not only the reason we celebrate Advent each year. It is the reason we meet on the first day of each week. And it's really the reason behind every other celebration that we have. The promise is what keeps us going. We are children of the promise. And because of the promise, all the other promises have meaning. Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. That's the guarantee. Now, not too long after the creation of all things, man broke the covenant that God had made with him. He failed to believe and to trust God. In essence, man questioned The promise of God. That was the first sin. In fact, every sin since has begun with not believing what God said. So I want us to just very quickly, just as a super fast flyover survey, think about how God has revealed himself through history to bring us to Advent. With Adam... immediately after man's fall, God spoke another promise. This one, he actually spoke to the devil and by implication to man. Genesis 3.15, really important verse, very early in the Bible, right after the fall. God says to the devil, and I will put enmity between you, that is division, conflict between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Somewhat cryptic, but as we go through the Bible, we're going to come back to this over and over and see it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. 
This is the birth of hope. If God does, in fact, bring it to pass, if he brings to pass what he promised in this verse, redemptive history then begins with this promise that will culminate in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. From that moment on, mankind had a future. From that point forward, God's people anticipated the advent of a Savior. In this cosmic battle, Satan would injure Christ. He would appear to be mortally wounded when he died on the cross. But Jesus would rise again and cast the devil into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. For in Adam all die, even so Christ shall be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15. He would destroy the devil, Romans 16:20, and, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So there was a coming Antichrist and a coming Christ. All the world would align with one or the other. Rome and the church, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These two kings and their kingdoms must clash. Matthew 12:19. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? He's talking about when Jesus was casting out demons and then he will plunder his house. Many legends and mythologies in the ancient world are filled with tales of heroes engaged in life and death struggles against dragons, serpents, and other monsters. Uh, G.K. Chesterton puts it this way, fairy tales do not tell children uh, that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. The Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson said, Imagine for a moment the reaction of hell to the death of Christ. Jesus was bound with the bonds of death. You think about it, if you're watching a show or something and the hero dies, the story's over, right? They died. It's done. There's, there's no, you can't come back from that. So, Ferguson says, what celebration, talking about in hell, celebration and joy in hell. God was defeated. Vengeance was the devil's. But they reckoned without the wisdom of God, for Christ could not be held down by the bands of death. In fact, through death, he was paralyzing the one who had the power of death, and he was setting his people free. What seemed to be defeat was actually victory. The resurrection morning was hell's gloomiest day. Satan saw the wisdom of God and tasted defeat. World history is the story of this promised battle that culminates in the hope of Advent. And Israel, Revelation 12:5, and Israel was delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So that was Adam. Promise right out of the chute. Promise of a Savior. Promise of the Advent. 
Then what about Noah? Men soon forgot God's promise and turned away from him. And the conditions in the world were worse than they are today. Genesis 6, 5, and 7, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. But there again we have the clear signal of hope. Because in in just the next verse, I mean, God no more says that. And here's what he says. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hope. And because of that ill-deserved favor, because of that grace, God renewed his promise to Noah and to man, and thus hope remained. Genesis 9, 12 and 13, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant or the promise between me and the earth. And so each time we see a rainbow, we should remember God keeps his promises and therefore we have hope. Now we come to Abraham. The promise became more and more specific. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Abraham knew he had a future. Why? Because of the promise of God. Romans 4, 20 through 22, he he did not waver. This is Abraham. He did not remind you, the New Testament is an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. We learn things in the New Testament about the Old Testament we wouldn't know otherwise, and God pulls the curtain back and says, let me tell you what was going on. He, Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he, that is God, was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. You remember what God promised Abraham? I'm going to, through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. How far away was that? Christmas Day. 2,000 years. A lot of stuff happened in between. But Abraham did not waver. In fact, Hebrews 11, 9 through 10, gives us additional commentary. By faith, he, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And Jesus instructed the Pharisees, saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, And he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see Christ's day? Because he had hope. 
and he believed God. And if God said, I'm going to do it, that's as, that's as good as done. That's the same as seeing it. Abraham, <clears throat> Abraham understood gospel hope. Now Moses. God made the people prosper in Egypt, and then with mighty power he led them out. In the desert he endured their conduct, that is, he put up with them. And in Canaan he overthrew seven nations and gave their land to his people. All of this took about 450 years. Moses saw Christ. Under Moses, the the Levitical law was given, and Paul, again, commentary, explains the purpose of that law. So you got Moses, God gives his law, why? Galatians 3. Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. No one ever thought they were going to be saved by keeping the law. That was they were they weren't going to be able to earn their salvation through good works, but the Scripture has confined all under sin. Why? That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Moses believed the promise of God, and thus he could see the future, and therefore he had placed his hope in the advent of Christ. Moses believed in Christmas, in the advent of Christ. Hebrews 11:24 through 26, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Listen to this. This is what Moses was thinking. Why? Because he had the word of God. He had the promise of God. Here's what it says about Moses. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. The hope. What about David? God made David king of Israel, calling him a man after my own heart, and promised him an eternal heir. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government, referring to Jesus, and peace, there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Isaiah 11.10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Psalm 132.11, The Lord has sworn truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne... The fruit of your body. Jeremiah 23, 5-6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching to the crowd of Jews that had gathered there for for, uh, the Pentecost feast and the Passover, there is a reference, he makes a reference to the promise. A promise they would have all been familiar with because it was the promise that God made to Abraham. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna send your seed is going to be a blessing to all the nations. Here's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church in Acts 2. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ or Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God would call. That's that's quoting from the promise that God made to Abraham. And all those Jews would have known that. In other words, this is nothing brand new. This is the ancient promise. This is what we've been talking about from the beginning. Here it is. It has arrived. In Acts 13, Paul recounts much of this Old Testament history. And having reached David... Paul jumps straight to the promised Savior who is a descendant from David, and he mentions John the Baptist as his immediate forerunner who pointed the way to Jesus himself. John's often thought of as the last of the Old Testament prophets, all who were pointing to Jesus. Paul is now able to follow the Baptist's example and direct his hearers' attention to the same Jesus. Everything up to this point has been about the advent of Christ. Acts 13, 23 through 25. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Remember, from the time of the fall, God had promised a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, at the birth of Christ, an all-out assault was mounted to frustrate this promise of God. You think the Georgia Senate race is hot. All efforts are being poured into Georgia right now from both sides. Well, right now, all of hell is mounting all of its forces to try to prevent the promise of God from being fulfilled. Revelation 12, 13 through 17. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she nourished for a time and times and a half 
half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the child is to rule the nations and yet the monster who opposes the people of God and who opposes the kingdom of God on earth, this great monster is right there at the birth of the child ready to devour him, ready to stop him from taking his reign over the nations. Why do you think Satan wants to stop Jesus Christ from reigning over the nations? Why should that be such a big deal for Satan? Well, who ruled over the nations prior to the coming of Christ? We know in a transcendent sense that God is sovereign and he rules even over Satan. But in terms of the right here and now, in terms of our human context, politically and historically, who's running the world and the nations? Who sets the tone for the world and the nations? Who gives them political and religious and ethical direction? Well, the Bible tells us over and over again that it's Satan. The one who deceives the nations. That's the way he's described throughout the book of Revelation. And so the advent of Jesus means that the devil is going to lose his power over the nations. Obviously, he wants to oppose the birth of the child and to devour him. So let's look at what does Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 say to recall what the birth of Christ will mean. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Nothing is going to stop the birth of this child. And when he's born, the government will be placed upon his shoulders and his government and his dominion and his reign will increase and increase and increase Forever. There shall be no end to the increase. And so justice, righteousness, and peace shall be established in the earth. Obviously, Satan doesn't want that to happen, but God's promise cannot fail. Of course, we've skipped over many, many, many other examples of God's faithfulness, of his promise-keeping. Over and over we see God keeping his word. Even when it all seems hopeless, he lets us see the end of the stories of all those that are listed in Hebrews 11. As the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have Hope. 
And the New Testament is packed with many other promises that provide the only foundation for hope. And they're all rooted either in the first or the second advent of Jesus Christ. I want to close today just by reading real quickly a few verses. Just we could add, add many more to this. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that is the birth of Christ, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That's where we're to put our confidence is in God's promise, in God's word, in God's son. Romans 5, 2 through 5, through whom also we have access by faith to this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 1 Peter 1.21, through him, through Jesus, uh, we believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We've got a lot of bad stuff going on, a lot of scary stuff in the world, a lot of uncertain things. We're not going to fix all that, but we know the one who can. And we know the one who has us in his hand, and no one can snatch us from his hand. Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God are in Jesus, in Jesus are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. All of God's promises are fulfilled in what he has done for us in Jesus. His promises create hope for us in the face of all the unknowns. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so today, we need to know that in spite of our failings, we are still loved by God and his promises never fail. We come from many different places this morning. And the God who promises is here for each and every one of us. For I know, uh, Jeremiah 29, for I, God says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise, the promise of a Savior. Thank you for all other promises you have given us that are fulfilled in him. Thank you for binding yourself to us by those promises and for giving us a certain hope. Help us to trust you and to stand on those promises and grant us the grace 
to keep our promises and to be bound to one another in love through Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews 10, 19-25, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the Lord's table is a token. It's a picture of an invisible reality. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And so as we eat this bread and drink this wine, by faith we are to see Christ and his work on our behalf. He has already come. That's the first advent. And he will come again, second advent. And by faith, we're to look behind us and ahead of us and see Christ. As our text in Ephesians 2 says, we were without Christ, and we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. We had no hope, and we were without God in the world. And then we see one of my favorite words in the Bible, but... But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here between the advents of Christ, in the present, here is how the Bible describes us. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I just want to stop there for a second. Let's not go past that fast. That is so profound and so powerful. You, you know how rotten you are? You know those thoughts you think? You know those deeds you've done that you're ashamed of? Listen to what he says again. He has presented you holy and blameless, and above reproach in his sight. You're clean. It's all gone. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us come and eat and remember. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Thank you for speaking and giving us certain hope and for revealing yourself to us. 
Indeed, you are faithful, though we are not. You spoke to us in our weakness, and now the joy of the Lord is our strength, for we now rely upon your great power. We are comforted by the fact that there are no promises made by you that will not be performed. For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Your word is unalterable, and your power is invincible. In this truth, we find our hope, our assurance, and our strength. You promised us a Savior, and that Savior came. By your purpose and power, you sent your Son into the world. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By your power, you made us. By your power, you redeemed us. You gave us new hearts. And by your power, you shall raise us from the dead, where we will see our Lord in all his majestic glory and live and reign with him forever. Bless now this Lord's day for rest and delight. And we thank you for being with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name. For it is good. Amen.